This is Dennis Dunaway. You're talking rock with Dave and Shane. Everybody, this is Ron Halford. Hey, this is Steve Hackett. You folks are just recapping a triumph from a talking rock with Dave and Shane. Hey! Dennis Dunaway, Alice Cooper, the legend, of course, the co-writer of such smash hits. I'm 18, and of course. School's out. So many others. This is awesome, man. We are such huge fans, and huge. to get to chat with you, this this means so much. I'm from Detroit myself, so it's like, oh, all right. I grew up. I mean, the legend was always there. You know, <laughs> the music's always playing, man. He's yeah, well, Detroit has has rich history in music. That's for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually moving back to Detroit. That's right. <laughs> yeah, moving back. Uh, you know, the, the the downtown is is looking nice these days. It's oh, it's amazing what they've done. The riverfront, the restaurants, everything. It is. It's so cool. Uh, I I love the little museum downtown too. Yeah, it's got uh, you know you can go through and and see examples of what the early uh, assembly lines for the cars was, and they always have a bunch. They have a, a lot of uh, music history there, and yeah. and. It's it's really nice little museum. And about the time you start thinking I've had enough of a museum, it's over. <laughs> That's the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. How much of the of that? Uh, I know you guys aren't from Detroit originally, or I know Alice um, is, but yeah, I know you you guys are out from uh, like Phoenix, right? But how much? Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Alice was born in Detroit. Yeah. How, how much of um, that? You know, I think they call them gearheads back in the day, right? You know, the guys who worked on the line and, you know, the, uh, the kind of the working class heroes who ended up just falling into rock and roll, you know, really getting into it. How much of that fed into the music um, in those early days for you guys? Just that working class spirit. Uh, well, uh, when we were traveling around, you know, we had other influences but man when you whenever you got near Detroit all of a sudden this fist in the air you know hard rock yeah. <laughs> attitude was was uh well and alive and uh, uh of course you know that did help uh our direction in music uh you know we came through town you know and we'd see the Stooges and we'd see the MC5 and and we quickly realized that if you do a ballad, then everybody's going to get in line for the bathroom <laughs> or, <laughs> or run you out of town with a tire iron or something, <laughs> uh, you know, and and, uh, you know, we weren't necessarily uh, getting our our concept of our band across to other parts of the country. But whenever we got around the Midwest, all of a sudden there were people there that liked what we were doing. Mm. So and and, you know, thankfully, the the MC5 and, you know, the Motor City bad boys all took us under their wing and and uh, and kind of accepted us with a competitive, you know, attitude, yeah. of course. But but still, we were we were kind of accepted into the fold. Yeah. And uh, we kind of lived in Detroit. uh before we actually even got the farm in Pontiac, uh, because we would live in, uh, pretty much live out of this dive hotel way out on Gratiot, and uh, it was a funky hotel. But uh, but every time we 
we were getting all of our gigs in that area. So that kind of, we lived out of that hotel for a while. And then we, and then we got our farmhouse and, and that really made a big influence on the band because mm. we could play as late as we wanted, as loud as we wanted. And, and we would play like quite often play for 10 hours a day, rehearsing, writing. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad something good came out of Pontiac with you guys because the Detroit Lions, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in there. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, I just saw I just saw the Tigers play the Yankees at Yankee yeah. Stadium. So yeah. I was I was thinking, well, this is a good deal because uh, you know, either I'm not gonna feel bad if uh, you know, either team wins, I'm still rooting for them. <laughs> <laughs> the Tigers didn't win though. No. Are you Yankees are too hot this year? Yeah, right. <laughs> are you all Detroit with all your teams? You're not a Cardinals fan or anything? Uh, no, basically I follow the Yankees. That's that's pretty much it. I don't have time to do everything that I would like to do, you know. And I and I love to catch uh, because Alice and I ran uh, cross country when we were in high school. Mm. So whenever I see like a marathon or something on, on television, I, I get excited, you know, uh, even though what back when we ran in Arizona, uh, the only people that you would, if you saw anybody running down the road in the Arizona heat, you know, you figured they had just stolen something <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ran long distance there, but we did, you know, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, basically it's not a kind of a sport that anybody would want to watch because we would have people, you know, basically the janitor and his dog watch us run out of the, out of the school. And then, you know, a couple hours later, we'd come running back, you know, but <laughs> yeah, kind, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of a sport is that to watch? <laughs> Yeah, I wish I never got into sports myself. I think it was really just music. You know, it's the only thing that was saving grace. You know, music. Yes, love yeah. music. Yeah, I, I can't imagine living without music. Even though my brother, you know, it's like he doesn't not like music, but it's one of those things that drives me nuts because if the radio's on, he leaves it on. If it's <laughs> off, he leaves it off. He doesn't. He's indifferent. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, you, what was it? Go ahead. I'm sorry, Shane. I know we got a little delay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, my my thing's on delay here. When you um, were, were in Arizona and you went to Hollywood, this has always been something that really fascinated me. You went to Hollywood, things didn't work out quite the way you wanted, so you went to you picked Detroit. What was the draw with Detroit? Was it the scene, or was it out because it was where Alice was born, or it's where the work was for us? Mm. We just. Uh... You know, we kept we we were traveling all over. I called it the Zorro method. We'd play in Vancouver, then we would play in Washington D.C., then Arizona, then Florida. Mm. You know, it seemed like every gig we did, it made a big Z, <laughs> and sometimes it made a big N. But if you turned it on its side, it was a Z. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we we would take any gig that came along and. For some reason, we didn't take the distance that it took to get there <laughs> into consideration. <laughs> it's the gig. We got to do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, so uh, more and more, we started getting more and more gigs around the Midwest. 
And then we were uh, started getting booked uh, by an agency in uh, Detroit. Jeez, the name of the agency is slipping my mind right now. But, but anyway, they they started booking us, and so we started getting on all of these festivals. A lot of them were run by uh, Mike Quattro, Mickey Quattro. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we knew, um, uh, you know, the uh, Susie Quattro and her sisters, Patty, and uh, the um, the festivals would be like. It, the the fans of Detroit uh, for the hard rock there were so loyal. I mean, it was fist in the air and it was full support for every local band. You know, yeah. I, I mean, San Francisco had uh, heavy duty loyalty to their own local bands, but, but Detroit uh, eclipsed it, I think a bit. Uh, so, we started doing all of these gigs uh, more and more just around the Midwest and Canada. We did a lot of gigs in Canada. We crossed that bridge a bazillion times and every single time we'd end up having to take all the equipment out of the truck and take our clothes off. You know, <laughs> these, guys were, these guys were not happy to see, uh, you know, uh, long haired Americans cross into their country. <laughs> I imagine what the security protocols are now crossing the ambassador bridge. <laughs> Hopefully it's not, not bad, as though. bad. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. as bad. Well, one reason, yeah. actually, I did a thing recently where I crossed the bridge and did a thing in Windsor, which mm. is where CKLW was. Yep. Oh, yeah. Which, that's that's where we broke out of CKLW. I'm 18. Mm. Rosalie Trombley, the, the girl with the golden ear. But anyway, I did this thing recently, and then I had to get back to the Fillmore in Detroit for a uh, Dick Wagner tribute gig, a fundraiser. And uh, all of a sudden the line, because it was a weekend and a lot of people from Canada were coming over to Detroit to party. It, I was really, it was a nail biter because I wasn't sure if I'd make it on time. And I thought, Oh my God, this is going to take forever. But when we got up to the booth, the guy recognized me. Ah. <laughs> he said, hey, yeah, what's up? Yeah. Well, I'm playing, and you know what? I'd love to talk to you, but I'm in a really big hurry. And he, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, man. <laughs> nice, man. <laughs> Those early venues, I mean, you know, in, in Detroit, like, was there a venue that stood out to you? Because I, I know, like, the festivals, some other people were saying that the festivals were huge and maybe that's the, that was the best way to get like the maximum bang, you know, for your buck with mo- many bands at one time. Right. But are there certain venues that stood out to you? Like I know the Grandy Ballroom was legendary. Are there others like that? Yeah. East Town. Oh, yeah. East, East Town Theater was across town. And even though East Town would have I mean, the MC5 would play at the East Town once in a while, but the Grandy Ballroom was MC5 territory you know and uh, certain bands gravitated toward uh, or played the grandy more often and other bands like the stooges and us the east town theater was our stomping grounds mm. and uh, uh you know they they were great shows i mean uh i remember one night uh the stooges were on stage and uh, at that time, there was no such thing as, you know, the audience catching the singer. When Iggy would dive off the stage, people would get out of the way and he'd hit the floor. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and he liked it. <laughs> uh, but uh, so anyway, we came walking in with our 
guitars and stuff, you know, and Iggy was doing this thing that uh, was pretty popular for their show at the time where he would dive off the stage and then he'd walk around the audience and pick a fight with somebody, you know, and that was your badge of honor. Hey, Iggy picked a fight with me last Saturday night. Right. So anyway, we came walking in and Iggy was walking around the room looking for who he wanted to fight with. And he came up to Alice and it turned out to be a standoff. They were both staring at each other. And then Iggy was thinking about it heavily and then finally, he just grinned and shook his head and walked on and pick a fight, picked a fight with somebody else. But even the fact that they they stopped and were were staring down each other was quite a theatrical thing. <laughs> totally! Oh my god! Is there a picture of that anywhere? <laughs> that would be great. Now, are you kidding? If, even if we had a camera, we couldn't afford to get the film developed. <laughs> we were poor. <laughs> What, we talked to, to Wayne a, uh, a couple months ago, and he was describing that scene and his own band. What what was MC5? I mean, because we never got to see him. We got to see a later version, obviously, but you got to see him in their prime. What was MC5 like back in the day? Up there? Well, well, they were extremely popular in Detroit. Um, and, uh, you know, we did quite a few shows with them, but like uh, it was always struck me, their amps were so loud at the as loud as you can imagine, you know, and it'd be like they'd start their set with kick out the jams, you know what yeah. they're saying and kick out the jam. And that, then for me, that would be the last thing that you would be able to hear the singer. He would be singing, but you couldn't hear him. All you could hear is <laughs> these martial amps blasting as loud as they could. Uh, but it was a great show. It was, uh, you know, it, it was also interesting because it had this political uh, edge to it, this, you know, uh, rebellious thing. And, you know, it was with the Vietnam war and all that stuff going on, then it was a complete, so Detroit has the river between Detroit and, and Canada. And in Detroit, it was fist in the air, you know, yeah, you know, it was all like, we're gonna change things. We're gonna make it better. And then you cross into Canada and it's all like, give peace a chance. You know? <laughs> so, so it was like Canada, Toronto was more artistic and more, you know, groove, uh, peaceful, all for peace. John Lennon, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so interestingly, they were both kind of going for the same, you know, results, but going from opposite directions. But we go up to Canada and we play to the peace people, and then we come back and play to the fist people. <laughs> How did the peace people handle like the kind of you know sort of wild nature of Alice? <laughs> you know, Canada was one of the first places that really got what we were doing and liked what we were doing. We we played we loved playing up there. Detroit was more uh, you know they liked us too, but. But in uh, in Canada, it seemed like uh, they they were more artistic generally, and they liked the artistic idea of what we were doing in Detroit. You know, when we got there, we're like, OK, what are we how are we going to follow the Stooges? We can't we can't out, uh, you know, right. uh, 
outpower them. We can't outpower them. No way. Or MC5. So what should we do? Well, how about if we electrocute our singer? (laughs) (laughs) So Detroit loves the, you know, that edginess. uh, And, and therefore, you know, we focused on that because that's what was working for us where up in Canada would be more like they liked the fact that Alice was had a hatchet and chopped a watermelon apart. <laughs> <laughs> Way where before Gallagher. It was artistic, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way before Gallagher, there was Alice. Doing yeah. The, <laughs> Eat your heart the, out, Gallagher. Take it to the, the watermelons. <laughs> yeah. And you think it, and we would do the feather storms because we'd take the pillows out of the holiday inns and we'd, we'd borrow their fire extinguisher and we'd blow feathers (laughs) all over. But when Alice would do the, the watermelon, which only happened a few times, the, you get the sticky juice all over you. And then we do the feather storm and you'd be, you'd have feathers stuck (laughs) all over you by the end of the show. Well, I got to And Shane, we were just talking about this, right? We got to ask you about the feather story, (laughs) the chicken story, the whole thing uh, that happened there. And I think even Zappa got got word of that. Like, like Alice, there's a real chicken right in the in the pillow. Is that what happened? (laughs) Yeah, we got this. uh, Okay, Glenn Buxton uh, would play this uh, thing where he would tap his fingers on the neck of his guitar. You know, later it became uh, Eddie Van Halen's thing and other guitars, but Glenn did this thing and it always reminded me of clucking chickens because I grew up, uh, we had chickens when I was young. And so I thought, okay, you know, just one of our crazy ideas, we would, we would have anything we could think of, turn it into a stage prop and it would be something that, okay, if we just do it on this night, we have 20 stage props if this, let's throw this into the show. And if it works, then we'll use it again. If it doesn't work, we'll fix it or we'll, we will never do it again. But that, but the idea was each night would have its own things happening. And so uh, I thought, okay, we found this guy named Larry and he could get chickens. And I said, uh, okay, so the roadies will set a couple of chickens on top of Glenn's amp when he does this thing. And if anybody asks us, hey, what were those chickens doing? Act like you didn't even notice any chickens, you know? (laughs) So we were into stuff like that. But uh, so we found this guy, Larry, he got us uh, chickens and we had two of them. They were like our pets. One was named Pecker and one was named Larry (laughs) because of the guy (laughs) that got it. And uh, we did it at the East Town Theater uh and it worked great i mean there's pictures uh of us on stage and there's a chicken up on top of the amp and there's one walking around uh the thing that was great about the chickens is i'm talking about us acting like uh we didn't notice the chickens well the these chickens in all of this loud music and all this chaos rolling tires across the stage and throwing (laughs) garbage cans and everything (laughs) These chickens acted like nothing was even going on. They would just walk around pecking the floor for whatever, you know, they wanted. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is brilliant. You know, these chickens are are great. And so we did the chickens a few times. And even we did a few small clubs where Alice would toss the chicken into the crowd and 
the people would bring the chickens backstage to us to give them back. Right. And then we would give them a free album and a poster and a picture with them and stuff like that. Uh, well, in Toronto, we didn't know that Alice was going to, I doubt if Alice even knew he was going to throw the chicken into the audience, but he did. And uh, to the chickens demise, so they say, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I have seen a film and I, and I can't, couldn't find it again. It was somebody standing out in the audience and you could see us on stage playing. And then you could see Alice throw the chicken and it was, you know, flapping its wings and it came and landed right by the camera. Oh God. Uh, Man. But anyway, yeah. And uh, so, you know, we didn't realize exactly the impact that it had uh, because, uh, you know, we just we we're doing gig after gig after gig. It's like turn the page. Right. Yeah. So we 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 get to some other our next gigs and people are like, where's the chicken? We're like, oh, well, we're, we're not doing the chicken anymore. <laughs> He died, you know, <laughs> uh, and and fans would be showing up with rubber chickens, you know, like the yeah. novelty shop. And yeah. we're going, it took a while for it to catch up to us that uh, our reputation now is determined by that incident. Such a great story. Yeah. I, the, oh, your whole, uh, the whole Dr. Dreary thing is just, is also fantastic you know that was your nickname and the band because you had a tendency to write you know darker songs uh you know the horror type songs tell us just a little bit about how how much horror played into your young life you know with alice you guys were big fans of the movies you used to go to the movies a lot and see a lot of horror movies is there anything yeah that really stood out uh yeah alice and i would go to the drive-in and uh we saw like um, three Edgar Allan Poe movies uh, and we saw, you know, and Hitchcock and stuff like that. But the, the real big roots of all of our liking the horror thing was, first of all, the theatrics of it, Frankenstein and, and Dracula and all that. But the very first uh, we did a couple of gigs where we pretended to play instruments. Well, we did one one gig where we pretended to play. And then we decided to become a real band and learned how to play our instruments. But the first uh, show we ever did where we actually played a whole show was the Halloween dance at Cortez High School. This was 1964 Halloween. And uh, we, we decided, okay, because Alice and I were also in art class and we were the artists that had to do everything for everybody if they if they needed a sign that said no parking oh you guys are artists you can make the sign right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh well we're kind of different kind of artists than that but we'll do it uh so anyway we uh we called it the pit and the pendulum because we had seen the edgar Allan poe thing and then we got a clothesline and and made giant spider webs on each side of the stage we got, you know, and we would recruit people from the art class to help us. And we would make, pa we made the paper mache tombstones and wrote stuff on it. We got cardboard boxes that refrigerators were delivered in and, and we cut them and painted them to look like wooden coffins. And we even had a friend of ours, uh, father was a carpenter and we got him to make us to guillotine. Mm. And it wasn't, 
we didn't have anybody put their head in it and it didn't work like that. But still, it was about eight feet tall and it was a guillotine that we had on stage. So and then we had this guy named Ray Sadowski who put on this ghoulish makeup and he uh, because talk about how green can you be when you first start out? We didn't know what a set list was. You know, mm-hmm. we would we would just come together and decide, hey, what do you want to do next? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and so to keep the show going, this guy Ray would be in the coffin. And so between songs, he would come out and do some shtick, and then he'd get back in the coffin. We'd do the next song, right? <laughs> so all of this stuff is pretty much the 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 feel uh or the theme that Alice is still doing today. Such a, a tr- uh, trendsetting, like a founding moment, you know, that you guys laid out and not just with Alice, but like so many other bands. I mean, what does it feel like? What does it mean to you to um, to embrace that role of horror and all of those things? And, and then you see what some of these other you see how other bands have kind of incorporated those dynamics. I mean, I think Marilyn Manson over the years, right? So many others. I mean, how does it feel to be, you know, one of the, um, the pioneers? Well, we. You know, you you have your own influences and then you take all of your influences and then you try to make it original and take it somewhere to another level. That's how art evolves. And, you know, there were people before us, uh, you know, Little Richard was pretty theatrical and Liberace, even, yeah, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. So, you know, we come along and we say, OK, but but we're going to do it differently so that people you know, and I was like the crusader for doing things different, you know, hey, you know what, our very first gig as Alice Cooper uh, was with uh, uh, Blue Cheer and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Oh, man. And, and we played that show. And then I go on, hey, guys, get together. Look at this. Look, every single there's a lot of guys in Nitty Gritty, only three guys in Blue Cheer. But still, I'm like, look, every single musician in this show is wearing Levi's. Mm. <laughs> so, so let's make a pact right now. We want to be different. So let's never wear Levi's again. So it was always stuff like that. Like, how can we be different? And also, what can we do to get people to go home and tell their friend, hey, you, you got to see what I saw last night. You know, and uh, so we, we would do things that were almost embarrassing sometimes on stage. But but people would walk out talking about it, whether they liked us or hated us, they would yeah. be talking about us. And that was our goal. Yeah. And, and then the other goal was, okay, now they're going to say, Hey, you got to see this guy chopped a watermelon apart. Come on. And then they get there and Alice would do something completely different, you know? So, so uh, that was, that was pretty much a, you know, and it, we didn't put that much thought into it, really. It was just what we did. Where music, we worked hard on that. And we, you know, we, we, we really put a lot of serious work into honing our craft and getting better and trying to do music that was our own and didn't sound like anybody else. But as far as the theatrics, that was just pure spontaneous fun we'd grab anything that wasn't bolted down and put yeah. it in the show you know oh yeah oh man <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome that's where um when you guys wanted i guess to change when did you um when did cindy start designing 
a lot of the costumes for the band. Was that around that same time or is that a little well, later? Well, based uh, is actually all the way back in Los Angeles. So hmm. uh, pretty for you. Cindy was already living uh, in the band house. Well, she actually she had an apartment in L.A. She was 18 and her friend was only like 15 or 16. And they worked at this place called Inside Outside Boutique. And it had rock clothes and stuff. And Cindy would make stuff and her friend Linda would make stuff. And uh, so when we uh, finally got Frank Zappa to listen to us and he said, you know, uh, I like you guys and I'd like I, I can record you guys on my label, but do you have a manager? We're like, no, we don't have a manager. And he says, well, you got three days. If you can't find a manager, maybe you can use my guy, but I'd rather have him focus on my career. So uh, Cindy and Linda, uh, these these two New York guys came in, Shep Gordon and Joe Greenberg, and they were looking at clothes. And so Cindy said, uh, you guys look like you might be rock and roll managers. And of course, like uh, Joe Greenberg finally admitted years later, they lied. They said, oh, yeah, we we managed the left bank. And, uh, <laughs> Because of these two blondes, right? <laughs> uh, Joe said, if they would have said, you guys look like roofers, we would have said, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so uh, Cindy got uh, Joe and, and Shep to come and listen to us play up at our house in Topanga Canyon. And then they agreed, you know, and all they heard was they, they didn't know anything about being managers, but... Yeah they heard Frank Zappa was interested to sign us and they were both desperate to try to find something new uh, yeah. oh, man. Uh, to, you know, to, to help their, their careers as well. So they came up and listened to us and they're like, you know, and I know our music didn't uh, uh, turn them around because our music was just totally wacko avant-garde, <laughs> but uh, Frank Zappa had promised to come and, hear us at the shrine or not not the shrine i'm sorry at the cheetah ballroom which was on a pier next to pacific ocean park in venice california mm. and uh, there was a big show there iron butterfly out on the beach and all these different bands playing and at that time we did not have the greatest reputation we kind of had even though we worked we had more gigs than most there was thousands of musicians in la that couldn't even get an audition we worked but they still made fun of us because of what we look like, how we dress when we're walking down the street in broad daylight, you know, <laughs> but cars would honk horns and screech tires and yell insults when we walked down the street. Oh, but, uh, but anyway, so, so it was the Lenny Bruce. Uh, I think it was a Christmas thing. Some, sometime in the winter, I'm not sure, but it was a Lenny Bruce thing and uh, tribute show. And uh, so the the room was packed because it was, I don't know who played before, so if it was Buffalo Springfield or something like that, but it was definitely in LA, uh, there were the freaks and there were the hippies. And the hippie bands, you know, wore tan leather and beads and patchouli oil and stuff. And the freaks were more like Frank Zappa and the GTOs and all of that, very yeah. colorful, more artistic. 
Uh, and you didn't want to make the mistake of calling a freak a hippie or vice versa, you know, kind of. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So anyway, we followed uh, uh, probably what was a, a hippie band, and uh, and when we started playing. The GTOs were up front screaming for us, you know, and and of course, Cindy, what, the GTOs and Cindy got along really well. You know, all of the uh, clothing that Cindy uh, started making because she could find the, the fabrics that nobody else could find. Mm. And also, we would just go to thrift stores and go to the women's section and find stuff. Uh, so, you know, Cindy already had us all uh dressed up like crazy and stuff and it was yeah you know definitely freaks as opposed to hippies even though we didn't identify with either we made fun of everybody yeah. uh, but alice had on like a, a lavender feather boa and and then it's the alice it's alice cooper right and it's five guys so um as soon as we started playing People lined up. They couldn't get out of the room fast enough. The place was packed. And then it emptied out by our third song. It was down to the GTOs and, and some of our friends. And I even saw Zappa walk out before we uh, did our final song, which I was disappointed because our final song was our big finale. Yeah. But anyway, he was he, at least he was smiling when he walked out. He wasn't yelling insults like a lot of the other people were. So we thought uh, we thought we blew it. You know, so we come off stage and these two potential managers are there and and we're thinking, oh, boy, they're going to tell us uh, that they're not interested and all that. And they're like, wow, you guys emptied this room in like three songs. That's power. We got to, you know, it's like Frankenstein, you know, we got to harness this power, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and we're like, uh, they're like, what, it, what is it going to take? What, it, what do we need to do to help you guys and all that? And we're like, well, our equipment is falling apart. Like, and Joe Greenberg and Shep Gordon are like, whatever it takes, man, we're, we, we love it. And uh, so uh, they went to, Zappa, you know, and the deal was, I think it was like for $3,000, right? Mm. And okay, this is how green Joe and Shep were. They thought that we were supposed to pay Zappa $3,000 to be <laughs> off the <label. laughs> Man. But, you know, their, their management and with Cindy uh, designing the costumes and stuff, it was a team and our roadies and it, it was, it was definitely everybody was, had their own uh, uh, approach to what it would take to, to get, get people to notice us in LA, you know, mm -hmm. and like one of the ideas was clear plastic pants. We were going to play this gig on uh, St. <laughs> Patrick's day. I think this was 60s. 68 or no 69 uh and so we were going to wear clear plastic pants and then uh shep gordon was going to call the police hey get down here this indecent exposure this band down here you got to get them off stage right <laughs> well 
that di- that didn't work, uh, mainly because you only had to go a few blocks up Sunset Strip to where all the strip clubs were. So who cared what we were wearing? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but we had all kinds of ideas like that. And it was anything we could do to get attention or to talk somebody into coming to see us. And uh, meanwhile, we were the we were allowed to do uh, our artistic, uh, uh, you know, we talk, talk about talking five guys into all wanting to do this thing that was so bizarre and yeah. so uncommercial, the opposite of commercial. Uh, but, and then have managers not say, oh, you guys have to write a hit single. You know? <laughs> They they were they were into it. They got it. So that's why it worked. They and little by little, none of us knew what we were doing, except uh, we all knew that there's no way we're going to throw in the towel. We're going right. to whatever whatever happens, we're going to overcome all of the hurdles and we're going to make it happen. Yeah, that's awesome. You, you talk about and or Shane, were you go ahead? Sorry. No, no. Just when you guys were the spiders. I mean, were you? Were you and Alice pretty much sure like you guys wanted to be the biggest band in the world at that time, or you just wanted to play music, or were you always in the back of your minds like we're gonna we're gonna do this? Well, you're talking about a couple of guys that were uh, in art class and lived in in kind of a fantasy world to begin with, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, it's like, uh, and I've heard Paul McCartney say this too. You know, we. We really did think we were going to be big. We we thought we were going to be famous. It just took the world a lot longer than we had hoped. <laughs> to uh, but uh, no, we you know the band you know we believed in what we were doing. It was just a matter if somebody didn't get it. You know, early on, Alice Cooper was the name of the five guys. Uh, if somebody came in the back room and said, "Hey, Alice," uh, then. To us, hey, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what's happening. They don't right. know what we're about. It was uncool, right? And nobody would answer, you know, like, hey, Alice. Well, there's nobody Alice here. This is Alice Cooper. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, all of these s- steps toward getting to where we needed to be, you know, when it got to a point where uh, uh, it was it was easier to promote Alice as a character. And therefore all the way back to that show, I talked about where people walked out Mm. Uh, at that point, uh, Alice was, uh, he, he had a point where he got really shy on stage because in Phoenix, Arizona, we had a hit single that went to number 11 on AM radio called don't blow your mind. But in those days, when we play, performed, even though Alice didn't imitate Mick Jagger, we were doing cover songs. So he kind of had that, uh, uh, you know, he, 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 he wasn't himself. He was somebody else to hide behind kind of that we're doing a cover song, right? But when we got to Pretty's For You, now this is you. You're the guy that's the singer. Mm-hmm. And we would rehearsals would be fine, but we'd play live and he'd spend half the set with these back to the audience because he was kind of, didn't have uh, uh, the, the courage <laughs> to turn around and, you know, he didn't really know, have his identity. 
So the band, uh, I came up with this idea. Okay, how about if every song you're a different character? So mm. nobody, nobody likes me where he's a little kid in his room singing through a door, which we would get a screen door and have a, bring it out on stage and all would lean through and sing. Nobody likes me. It's all my fault. And he'd be this little kid. And then Levity Ball, where this dreamy thing where ghosts were dancing and stuff in the song, Alice would imagine that he's seen people that nobody else can see. And he yeah. still uses that, those gestures to this day sometimes. Oh, uh, but uh, and then on Fields of Regret, which was our big closing song, Alice developed this dark character. And that's the only uh that's the thing people love the most. And mm. it's also the thing that most people would, would have walked out with the rest of the crowd, except they wanted to see that song and that mm. character. So when we drop, uh, when we would drop a song from the set, we would also drop the character. And when we dropped that song, I said, you know what, we, Alice, this is what's working for us. You know, you need to develop that character and we need to learn how to write songs to support, to give you the platform to uh, develop that character. Yeah. So uh, we decided that after Pretties for You, you know, we said, thought, okay, this is great doing things that uh, there's no chance of ever getting played on a AM radio, but we're hungry. We need some, <laughs> we need some songs that are relatable. And, and even if we just put like, get one hit song, song on a record, then people will, listen to our artistic stuff so uh so we started uh in that direction even though we were pulled into the studio too early for easy action we weren't ready to go in the studio so mm. uh i think if we would have had another month that album would have come closer to the quality of love it to death but by the time we got to love it to death i had written black juju for that character mm. uh i had um I had seen this poster in New York City of this clown that had spidery makeup. And so we decided, okay, that'll be perfect for the character. And, uh, you know, later on, Neil had the snake. And and when we were in Detroit is when I talked everybody into doing the executions. Okay. Uh, nobody wanted to do it. So I actually, me and a roadie built a rickety electric chair in the garage at the mm. farm. And then I went in and the paint still was a little tacky. And I went in and said, Alice, you know, come out to the garage, come on. And we had the lights off in the garage and a little path. And so I like guided him through all of this, you know, tools and stuff that we had been using to build this thing. And we got him to sit down. Okay, this is a chair, sit down here. And then we flipped the switch and all these lights started blinking on it. And they said, this is the electric chair I was talking about. Now pretend that you're getting electrocuted. And Alice had his beer, which I took from him. And he did the best. I, I don't think he ever did it on stage as good as he did there. It's like we thought maybe there was a short in our electrical stuff, you know, that he really got electrocuted. <laughs> but anyway, that, so then we went driving around the country with an electric chair strapped to the top of the station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
what, what was the you you kind of alluded to the writing um like you talk a little bit more about the the writing process especially i mean you have co-writing credits on i'm 18 and um schools out it was massive classics i mean i think no more mr nice guy too i want i think right like what um what was it like writing those tracks and uh and what was that process like for you well it depends on the song i mean uh we were we were touring so much or at least you know doing so many one-off gigs in a row uh when we lived at the pontiac farm you know but yet we were still coming up with two albums and two stage shows per year you know that's just the bar that was set high by the beatles you know mm. the amount that they produced uh so um uh you know i would bring a song to the table and most of the time when somebody brought a song into the rehearsal room, uh, it was something that was, okay, here's the idea, here's the chords, here's a, some lyric ideas, and everybody would, would brainstorm it. Every, every part of every song was discussed and voted on, mm. <laughs> and you would say, okay, and this was the rule. We had five guys, so we had a... a a good amount for vote. You know, if it was four guys, there'd be a lot of ties. You know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but we had five guys and the rule was, and, and I was like the, the guy that was cracking the whip to make sure this rule uh, was always adhered to. Mm. Okay. You, you can't just say, you can't verbally say your idea and have somebody shoot it down. You have to give everybody's idea a heartfelt try and play it, and then you can give it the boot, right? Mm -hmm. And then we would vote. And then if your idea lost, there would be no grudges or anything. It was everybody moved forward in the new direction. And that's how we worked. Mm -hmm. And um, and it worked great. I mean, we were our arguments would be loud. I mean, it was it was a debate. It was a heavy debate. A lot of people would stay away from the rehearsal room because we always sounded like we were yelling at each other <laughs> but, but uh but it would be a uh and and a lot of times if an idea uh didn't work out if somebody played it and they didn't play it right all of a sudden hey wait a minute that's not what i meant exactly but that but i like that better than what i was mm. saying. so we were all really willing to go with uh uh, you know, mistakes that turned out to be some a good mistake, you know, and head us in another direction. So I would, you know, uh, I would say bringing a song to the rehearsal room was like tossing your heart into a pool of piranha. <laughs> <laughs> but we would all, you know, in some songs, like uh, you mentioned, No More Mr. Nice Guy, that was more like Michael brought uh, mm. more of a finished song. Okay. You know, I wrote my bass part, Neil wrote his uh, drum part and all of that. But that song came in more of a, uh, a finished uh, uh, state. Okay. And, and we were also really good at not changing things that, uh, that didn't need to be changed. We didn't mm -hmm. change things just for the sake of changing it, which is a mistake I think a lot of musicians tend to make. Yeah. Uh, but so... We would bring all of the songs in, like I wrote "Under My Wheels" and and uh, Michael wrote uh, "No More so Mr. Cool. Nice Guy." But 
But it's kind of like by the time we got done, it was like everybody had a hand in it. Even Glenn, who got Mm. very few writing uh, credits because, but what Glenn did was the feel. Glenn always was the guy that we would be a little bit stumped. I'm not sure what we should do here. Anybody got any ideas? And Glenn would just start playing. We go, all right, yeah, here we go. Yeah. Awesome. So cool. (laughs) I love that. Sorry. Yeah, you talked about Glenn's demise in your book, uh, Snakes, Guillotines, and Electric Chairs, exclamation points after each one of those, of course. But um, (laughs) that was the editor's idea, (laughs) not mine. It was cool. (laughs) Thanks. um, But it it just uh, so... um, just in that the middle part of the 70s and then and then glenn kind of went and, and did his thing and it, it, you kind of you kind of talk about it a bit in your book was that just crushing for you to see him his decline oh absolutely i mean it's uh you see a friend who uh you know uh, glenn didn't have an easy life you know he was hard on himself and uh but he was a the greatest guy, everybody loved him. You know, he was edgy and he was, uh, he would cut you to ribbons, you know, but it was, it was like a rock and roll version of Don Rickles, where if he didn't (laughs) insult you, then you felt like you were, you know, you, you wanted to be insulted by Glenn because he (laughs) he was the best at insulting people, but it was all, it was, it was all in fun, you know, and the, um, you know, the thing about that, too, is it's impossible writing about Glenn. It's like he would have it's it seemed like he had 50 one liners every day that you wanted to write down and remember. Mm-hmm. And and you couldn't because there was too many. It was just a never ending flow of this witty, fiery sarcasm. And how do you write about that, too? You know, when you write uh, a sarcastic humor, it looks like somebody just said something mean, you know, unless you specify, he said laughing or whatever like that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, even if, uh, and the whole band did that. I mean, ever since high school, if anybody walked out of the room, everybody started whittling them to shreds, you know, until they came (laughs) back and then Glenn would go, he's back, you know, and, and that's what we did. We were still high school kids. And when writers would come around, you know, all of a sudden they'd write, they would read it as these guys hate each other, you know, and that wasn't it at all. We were, <laughs> we were all good friends. We were just putting each other down for the fun of it. Uh, but Glenn was the king. Glenn was definitely the king. Alice was right up there. Everybody knows how witty Alice is. Yeah. Uh, Neil has has his own really goofy Ohio sense of humor. Uh, uh, and Michael Bruce had really uh, off-the-cuff humor. But me, I was the quiet introvert back then. I know it's hard to tell now, but <laughs> I was the guy that would be sitting in the back of the station wagon while they were firing off all of these uh witticisms and then i would say something that was so abstract that everything would come to a screeching halt while they tried to think about what does that mean and (laughs) then alice would say oh uh dennis is having a heartbeat and that's that's basically why alice gave me that started calling me dr dreary because Mm -hmm. of that uh but but uh the the 
that's what sustained us really that humor because sometimes I thought we were more entertaining in driving down the highway than we were on stage. <laughs> <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Yeah.